Good morning. Happy 4th of July. Great to see all you guys here today. There's, you guys probably all had an excuse to not come, but you're here. So that's awesome. Let's just, let's just pray before we get, get into this message here today. Lord, we're thankful just to be here, God, to come into your presence to worship you, Lord. We're thankful for this day where we celebrate uh, what you have done in our nation, Lord. The fact that you have provided a way for us to live in a free nation, Lord. To come here and worship you together, Lord, in freedom, Lord. We just, we just worship you for that. We thank you for that, Lord. God, we just offer this time to you, Lord. We set aside um, any other distractions that might be uh, in our minds uh, right now. And we just give this time to you, God. I give my voice to you in this time, Lord. Lord, we know that, that there is nothing that I could say uh, that, that would have any value to anybody here outside of your Holy Spirit speaking through me, Lord. So I ask your Holy Spirit to speak through me, God. And uh, Lord, that we would have softened hearts to receive the word that you have for us today, God. Lord, we just pray that you would go to the, the house of Pastor Jeff, wherever him and Connie are right now, Lord, and that you would touch him and, and that, Lord, he would be comforted and have peace and joy um, um, to know that, uh, that you are uh, sustaining and taking care of him, Lord. We just pray healing on him, Lord. We just invite you into this place today, God, in Jesus' name, amen. What a, uh, what a kind of unusual time, you know, it's, it's crazy because you know, PJ, Pastor Jeff, he's, he's, uh, he's like the wildest one here, and he has been the wildest one here, and then all of a sudden, boom, he's, he's down for the count, um, but it's just been, it's, it's been amazing to see, uh, it's been amazing to see, I think, the church body function, not only the church body function um, with him not being physically here, but he is still teaching us, and I, I, uh, I got to visit him when he was in the hospital in Youngstown. I went up to see him, and I, I think the first day when I, uh, when we had gotten word that he was going to need a double bypass, open heart surgery, and you know it sounds like really severe, and I'm I'm at work and I'm emotional, and I text him like you know this long emotional text, and I'm like about to cry, and then he says, "Well, I'm just really upset that they're not letting me dance here because I've been listening to worship." So I'm just like, I guess he's not upset. I guess he's okay. But I went in to visit him, and he just. Man, we, we laughed for two hours, and he just, uh, he is just, just like full of joy, just such a display of, of what it looks like to trust God in trial, what it looks like to count it all joy. That is literally uh, the display that he has put on. He is teaching us even when he's not here, and it's just, wow, what an, what an amazing thing to see. First of all, what an amazing thing. I told this to him when, when, I, was, when I was visiting him here. I said, you know, what a testament to the work that you've done, that you can be out for an extended amount of time and the church can still function and you don't have any worries. You know, you don't have any worries about how the church is going to function without you because he has raised up disciples, you know. He has done what the Lord has called him to do, what the Lord has anointed him to do, and he has raised up disciples and he has disciples that can uh, manage the house while he is uh, while he is resting and, and being restored. And I honestly, I told him this too, and I believe this wholeheartedly. I believe that the Lord is saying to him that I need to get your body right because this next leg of the race is going to be a wild one. Man, we thought we were seeing him dance before. I can't imagine the dance moves when he when he's allowed to dance again. Man, I'm telling you, it's going to be it's going to be wild. I am prepared for a move of God in His return that is just. Going 
to be crazy because I truly believe that the Lord is preparing his body and restoring his body for something great. So, um, man, and in the meantime, it's like, it's like he, is still, he is still leading us. He's still, um, he's still leading us, maybe not physically here present, but he's leading us in the way that he trusts in the Lord and the way that he handles himself in the midst of a trial. So that is awesome. What an honor it is to, to be in a body where we're led by such a man. And not only that, but, you know, I, I'll say this too. Pastor Mark, what a great job that he's done. Stepping up to the plate, filling in gaps, and doing what is necessary. Bobby did a great job last week. He's up in the crow's nest. Man, what, what a great job. How cool is it to see this stuff happen? Um, just, just really, really Really cool, really amazing. But man, I'm I'm excited for the day when when um, Pastor Jeff and Connie get to come back, and Pastor Jeff gets to be free to dance. The doctors releasing the dance. We're gonna see some moves. I trust that. Let me just uh, get in my message here. My the title of my message here is the gaze of God. Um, I I was reading through uh, the book of Isaiah in the Passion Translation recently, and I came to the very last book, or the very last chapter of the book of Isaiah, chapter 66, and verses 1 and 2 really just captured my heart. And I have, uh, I read this about a week and a half ago maybe, and I have read it a hundred times since then, and I've reflected on it and meditated. I have studied through this and prayed through this, and this is uh, the word that the Lord has has brought me here to give to you today. And I'm just let me just read Isaiah chapter 66 verses one and two in the Passion translation. This is what it says: This is what Yahweh says: The heavens are my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where is the place I will rest? My hand made these things, so they all belong to me, declares Yahweh. But there is one my eyes are drawn to, the humble one, the tender one, the trembling one, who lives in awe of all that I say. I just want to start here. I just want to add a little bit of context to this. I want to add a little bit of depth to this, uh, to this passage Actually, a little bit. I'm going to add about a thousand years worth of depth to this passage. So if you just hang with me, if you Bible scholars can hang with me as I add a little bit of depth to this, because I think that it's really important for us to understand the context of what's happening here. Because this passage in Isaiah was prophesied by God through Isaiah um, by a man to a people in a time. All right. So we're going to, we, we want to know who those people are why God is saying that and what is going on uh, during that time. So Isaiah is prophesying this around the time when Israel would have been taken into captivity by Assyria. They would have been sieged and taken into captivity by Assyria. And um, this is around the, the reign of King Hezekiah of Judah. And during this time, Judah is essentially without maybe knowing it or acknowledging yet, preparing for their exile in Babylon. Um, Bear with me, Bible scholars here. Let me just, just for anybody that may not know the history between Israel and Judah, let me just just draw this out for you. Israel and Judah were once one nation that, that were birthed from one family, a man named Jacob, who the Lord changed his name to Israel, which became the family of Israel, which became the nation of Israel. And then sinfulness drew a divide between the tribes of Israel, and they became two nations, which is Israel and Judah. But both of these nations, even at this time, Judah and Israel, both of them laid claims to what the Lord had done. Um, They laid claims to the fact that they had been called by God as the chosen people of God, um, proclaimed and declared to share and spread the glory of God throughout all of the earth. Both Israel and Judah 
had witnessed and experienced and read the same stories of the Lord delivering them out out of uh, bondage and into this promised land, um, conquering armies way greater than them, um, annihilating giants by his mighty hand. They had witnessed all this stuff. So if you could put yourself in the mind of a Jew in that time, a person in Judah, as they watch what they thought was impossible happen in the land of Israel is conquered and taken into captivity. Imagine reading these stories and seeing God's hands of protection, seeing God's hands of provisions uh, over this nation of Israel and Judah all the days of your life. And every story that you've heard is of God's provision and protection over Israel. And then all of a sudden what happens is your sister nation has just gotten destroyed and defeated. The Lord has essentially lifted his hands of protection off Israel and allowed them to be taken into exile. If you could imagine a Jew in that time, the people of Judah are probably fairly nervous. And they're especially nervous because after the Assyrian king comes in and conquers Israel, takes all, of Israel, all the Israelites into captivity, and then he comes knocking on the doors of Judah and threatening Judah. And the people are a little bit concerned, and the people respond in the only way that they know how to respond. And we know that because of what the Lord answers them with in Isaiah 66. And the way that they respond to this fear and this nervousness, they respond by increasing their religious activity. And so when the, in Isaiah 66, when the Lord says, heavens are my throne, earth is my footstool, where is the house you will build for me? Where is the place I will rest? He's not actually asking like, where's the, where's the house? Are you going to build me a house or not? He's saying, you can't possibly build a house big enough for me. You can't possibly contain me. If heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, you couldn't possibly build a place big enough for me. You couldn't possibly bring me a sacrifice that isn't already mine. He says, look around. Everything that you see, it's mine already. I created it, and it's already mine. There isn't a sacrifice that you can bring to my altar that isn't already mine. But he says, there is one that my eyes are drawn to. What what is happening in, in Judah... What, is, what the Jews are doing is they're responding with a, a spirit of religi- religiosity. They're responding with a religious spirit. This is what they've been trained to do. Because this is what the religious spirit says. The religious spirit says, I need to do more so that God will give me more. If I do more, God will give me more. I see what's happening in Israel and now I'm nervous so I'm going to do more so that maybe God will protect me. I'm going to bring God more sacrifices so maybe God will protect me. I'm going to make sure that I decorate his house a little bit better so maybe that he'll protect me. I'm going to be better at religion so that maybe he'll protect me. The problem is this is what the, the center of the religious spirit is. The center of the religious spirit is me. Because the reward that you're seeking is not the Father. It's not, it's not his presence. It's not Jesus. The reward that you're seeking is you. The reward that you're seeking through God, he's just the middleman, is that you would be protected. And that's what happens in, in Judah. The people start responding in a religious spirit. They start to say, oh, we need to do more so that we don't end up in the same boat as them. And what happens is the Lord answers them to say, that's not what I want. I'm not interested in it. 
The Lord is not interested in our religious activity. He's really not. So I, I asked the questions. I was studying this, and I'm telling you, I have read this a million times. I have just been um, stuck on this verse. Um, as I read this, I started to ask the question to the Lord. Lord, how did they get here? How does, how does a nation of people called by your name that have experienced your mighty hand come to this place where they are consumed and this religious spirit has manifested itself in them? How, does, how do they get to this? Because I think that's important for us to understand so that, you know, so that we can check ourselves before we wreck ourselves, right? So that, we can, so that we can pay attention to how they got there so that we cannot get there. Because the Lord is uninterested in that. But we want God's heart. And so as I was, as I was praying and I was seeking the Lord's face on this, and I felt like the, where the Lord took me is Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, the people of Israel are, are camped at the base of Mount Sinai. And just to give you a little bit of, I'm going to bring you forward on this. I'm going to uh, um, preface this a little bit to give you a little bit of an understanding of, of how they got here. Now, now, Bobby talked a little bit about Moses last week. Let me, just, let me just echo this a little bit. Moses is born as a baby. He's an Israelite during a time when the Israels are enslaved in Egypt. He's floated down this little river. He's, he's found by Pharaoh's daughter and, Fer- and raised in Pharaoh's household as a member of Pharaoh's family. So he's raised by the king of Egypt as a member of the royalty of Egypt, knowing that he's an Israelite. So at some point, he gets to this point where he realizes who he is and that he's in a place that he doesn't belong. And he sees this Egyptian slave master beating and abusing this Israelite. And he steps in and he kills the Egyptian slave master and buries him in the sand. And not long after that, he sees a couple um, Israelites in a dispute. And he basically says to them, "Uh, uh, what are you doing? tries to break it up, tries to break up the dispute, and they say, what are you going to do, kill us too, like you did that Egyptian? And here's what's happening here. Moses has recognized who he is. He doesn't belong to Egypt, the people that he's been raised by. So he essentially steps out of, of Egypt by killing an Egyptian. He's essentially stepping out of this royalty and into oppression. And what happens is he's met by rejection. The Israelites reject him too. So what does he do? He flees and he goes live in a foreign land where he lives a fairly normal life for 40 years. He's a shepherd for his father-in-law's sheep, and one day he's wandering the hills and he encounters the presence of God in one of the most mighty ways ever in this burning bush where the Lord, literally the person of God, speaks to him out of a burning bush. And I've, I've wondered before, like, why did God choose Moses? What, what was it about Moses that, that God had decided that he was going to use? Because Moses was flawed, <laughs> Right? And, and here's one thing that I, I, I just thought of as I, was, as I was reading. One thing that, that may be a possibility, one of the reasons the Lord might have used Moses is because when Moses walked back into Egypt, both the Egyptians and the Israelites wanted to know why. Because <laughs> he was living a comfy life. He was comfortable where he was living in the foreign land. He was a, he was a shepherd for a wealthy, wealthy father-in-law, married. He was living the good life. And then he walked back into a land where his life was in danger to set free a people that had rejected him. Why? And the only reason that you could even imagine why is because Moses had an encounter with the presence of the living God that demanded faith demanded it. 
So Moses, by God's mighty hand, leads the Israelites out of Egypt, out of oppression, into the wilderness, and they're, ba- they're camped now at the base of Mount Sinai, and the Lord intends to meet two million Israelites with an encounter with the presence of God in the same way that he met with Moses on that mountain while Moses was shepherding. Rather than meeting with Moses in a burning bush, he was going to meet with two million Israelites as a burning mountain. He was going to speak to Israel, the nation, out of a burning mountain. And the reason he would do that is because he intends for Israel to have the faith to move forward as Moses had the faith to move forward, to leave their comfort and step in to the unknown and trust the Lord as Moses had been forced to step into the unknown and trust the Lord. Before, uh, before he has this before the Israelites have this encounter before us, the Lord essentially lights, lights this mountain on fire and speaks to a people. Moses first goes up the mountain himself, and the Lord gives him a specific instruction to go back down the mountain and, and, and to give to uh, the Israelites at the bottom of the mountain. And this is what the Lord says in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to Israel. So Moses goes back down the mountain. He gives these words, these words of instruction to Israel. And then we pick up in Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 16. This is what happens next. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So Moses goes up the mountain, and the Lord essentially gives him the Ten Commandments. And then Moses goes back down the mountain. We pick up in Exodus chapter 20 because the Lord intends to meet with the people of Israel again. And this is what happens in Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And Moses said, you speak to us. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to God in the thick, drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So, The Israelites encounter the presence of God like Moses encountered the presence of God. If you could imagine standing at the base of this mountain and all of a sudden this mountain is lit on fire and the Lord starts to speak in the thunder out of this mountain. If you could imagine that. 
and the, and the people stood at the base of the mountain. The Lord had called them out to the base of the mountain. They stood at the base of the mountain. They trembled before the presence of God. And then the Lord sends Moses back up, and Moses comes back down, and the Lord intends to meet with Israel again. But this is what happens this time. The Lord lights this mountain on fire, and the people hear the thunder and the lightning and the trumpet, and they say, Moses, you go close, and we'll stay back. We'll do whatever you say, but we don't want to go close. But listen to what the Lord's instruction to Moses was when Moses first went up the mountain, before these people had ever encountered God, like, like that, the burning mountain, before God had ever spoke to them out of the burning mountain, when Moses went up to receive instruction from God the first time, God said, this was his intent for Israel, that Israel would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The priests in that time had the distinct anointing, the distinct calling to come close and to live in close proximity to the presence of God. And this was the Lord's intent for Israel, not that they would have, be a kingdom that has priests, that they would be a kingdom of priests, that the entire nation of Israel would be anointed and invited to come up close to God, that they wouldn't be a kingdom that has holy people, but that they would be a holy nation, a kingdom marked by consecration and dedication to the Lord. And so when the people had experienced God at the base of that mountain and they trembled, it made them uncomfortable. The next time they heard the thunder, the thunder roll and the, and, the, and the trumpets blast, they said, Moses, you go forward and you talk to God, but we want to stay back. Don't make us go into that. That's uncomfortable for us. I'm more comfortable staying back and listening to what the Lord has told you than for me to step close to the Lord as the Lord has called me to step close to him and to receive the word that the Lord has called to give to me. The Lord didn't intend for Moses to be a mediator. He didn't intend for that. He intended for Israel to be a, a, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Let me tell you something. God doesn't intend for abundant life to be a church with a pastor, with a priest. Not, God doesn't intend for abundant life to be a church with a person that draws near and tells you guys about it. He intends to be a, a, abundant life to be a church of priests. A church of people that are invited close to the presence of God, who accept the invitation to come close and hear the Lord for themselves. This is what I believe is the birth in Israel, the birth, the foundation of this religious spirit that was going to just wreak havoc on this nation for years and years and years to come. The birth of this is a, is a group of people that have been invited close to the presence of God, but have instead chosen to stand far back. And this is, this is the result of this. This is what happens when, when the, we let this religious spirit consume us. This is, this is what happens. In Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 6, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. 
And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all of the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill, hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Listen to this. Pay attention to this verse. And all that generation also were gathered to the fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. The religious spirit is a bookend for faith. Your religiosity may sustain you for your life, but it will die with you. You want to see future generations. If, you, if you're a parent in here and you want to see your children thrive all the days of their life in the presence of God, if you want to see your grandchildren thrive, spend all the days of their life in the presence of God, you are called to come close to the Lord. So in Isaiah 66, when Judah has seeing things falling apart around them, they retreat to the only thing that they've ever been taught by previous generations all the way back to the Israelites standing at the base of Mount Sinai, and that is to dig deeper into religion. The result of this religious decision, this religiosity in the Israelites... The result of this is hundreds of years of confusion and corruption by a nation that had been invited to come close but instead chosen to stand at a distance. Here's the good part. This is, here, here's, the, here's the great news that the Lord, um, he doesn't offer conviction without grace. He doesn't offer conviction without mercy. He doesn't offer conviction without correction. The Lord's conviction is served on the same plate with grace, mercy, and correction. And so in Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, it says, This is what the Lord Yahweh says, The heavens are my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where is the place where I will rest? My hand made these things so they all belong to me, declares Yahweh. Listen to this. But there is one my eyes are drawn to, the humble one, the tender one, the trembling one, who lives in awe of all I say. The Lord is saying to Israel, There's nothing that you can give me, but I'll tell you what draws my eyes. I'll tell you the thing my eyes are drawn to. Listen, if there is a verse that we should spend every day of our life waking up and reading, it's probably the one that says, where the Lord says, but there is one my eyes are drawn to. Because miracles break out in the gaze of God. The unthinkable happens in the gaze of God. Transformation happens in the gaze of God. All of the Lord's work, the kingdom is moved forward within the gaze of God. And the Lord invites us to live within his gaze all the days of our, our, all the days of our life. And he tells us what his eyes are drawn to. The humble one, the tender one, the trembling one, who lives in awe of all I say. I just want to break down quickly. I want to break down.
these three things. I want, I want us to understand completely what the Lord is saying here. I want us to understand completely what the Lord desires from us so that we can check our hearts, so that we can set our hearts on him, so that we can live all the days of our lives in the gaze of the Lord. So what is biblical humanity or humility? This is what, this is what I wrote down here. This biblical humility is your heart's acknowledgement of the depths of the mercy of God in your life. Biblical humility is your heart's acknowledgement of the depths of the mercy of God in your life. C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Here's what humility is not, because sometimes we get these things confused. Humility is not insecurity. Actually, quite the opposite. Humility is confidence. Because humility says two things. Humility says that I recognize that I am nothing without the Lord. I recognize that my life is purposeless and, and meaningless without God. But here's what it also says. It also says that I recognize that the God that causes the sun to rise in the morning and set in the evening, the one who has hung the universe in its place, and the one who sustains everything by the echo of his voice, that is the God that sustains me. That's the God that hides me in his wings. So that's not insecurity. That's confidence. But it's, it's confidence that has nothing to do with who I am, and it has everything to do with who God is. This is what happens when we take a heart posture of humility. The heart posture of humility that says, I'm nothing without you, Lord. That I acknowledge and I recognize the mercy of God in my life. What happens when we take that heart posture of humility is that what comes in is humility. What comes out is tenderness. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32... It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as, as God and Christ forgave you. So what biblical tenderness is, is recognizing God's forgiveness and mercy towards me, towards you, and displaying that to others. We can't possibly have biblical tenderness. You can't actually separate any of these things. You can't possibly have biblical tenderness without biblical humility. Because you can't possibly be tender towards another person unless you've actually recognized the Lord's mercy in your own life. You start to recognize the Lord's mercy in your own life, and naturally what's going to flow out of that is, a, is, is, is to look at other people through the same lens of the cross and to look at other people and only see God's mercy and, and, and goodness. Forgiveness is, is, is a natural attribute of a tender heart, a heart that is, has postured itself in humility. And neither of these things, a, a, a heart that is postured in humility or an outward expression of tenderness, neither of these things are possible without the trembling. Neither of these things are possible without trembling in awe of who God is and all that he says. 
If you look at any place in the Bible where a person comes into trembling, they come into trembling within close proximity to the presence of God. Because here's what close proximity to the presence of God does to a person, to a life, and to a heart. You come into close proximity, you come into the place of trembling, close proximity to the presence of God, and the Lord starts to make you pliable again. He starts to make you moldable again. He starts to work into your heart and and, and infuse your heart with his goodness, with his mercy, with his love. And then naturally what comes out of that is acknowledgement, a heart's acknowledgement of the mercy of God in your life. Naturally, what comes out of that is a tenderness towards other people. But it starts in the trembling. It can't happen outside of the trembling. You cannot possibly will your way into humility. You can't life coach your way into humility. You might be able to put on a show for some people, But the people that are in your circle, the people that God has put in your life for you specifically to have influence on, they will always be able to read your heart. And the people that can't read your heart, you're really not influencing them much anyway. I promise you. I could put on a show for you guys, but my wife will always know my heart. I can put on a show of humility. I could put on a show of tenderness. But my wife will always know my heart. And the Lord isn't calling us to put on a show. He's calling us to set ourselves in the close proximity to the presence of God. To tremble before the Lord until the Lord starts to change our hearts. Mark, worship team, you guys can come up closing up here. What the Lord wants to do with with a people, and, and, and the Lord has wanted this from the beginning of time, what the Lord wants from a people is a people that are tender, that have stood in the presence of God, that have become moldable and shapeable, because then the Lord can do with your life what he has intended to do with your life, which is goodness. The Lord intends to share his goodness, to spread his goodness in your life, but it only comes when you are willing to step into the trembling, when you're willing to go before the trembling of the Lord and allow your heart to be transformed and your life to be transformed. And when you do, when you do allow your life to be transformed and your heart to be transformed, the people that you're called to influence, the people the Lord has put within your your close circle that are going to read your heart, their lives will be forever impacted by that. Their lives will be forever impacted by that. We can't will our way to this. The only way that this can happen is by the Holy Spirit. The only way that this can happen is by the Holy Spirit. So, listen, there's going to be some people that are going to come up here that are are, are willing to pray with you. Maybe the Lord is, is, is placed some conviction on your heart today. Maybe the Lord has placed a little conviction on your heart to say, you know, maybe you recognizing a little bit of that religious spirit inside of you. But the Lord has offered his grace and his hand of mercy today as well. 
And I believe that when we come to the Lord to say, Lord, I need a humble heart. I need you to change my heart. I need you to transform my heart. When we come within close proximity, when we're willing to dwell in close proximity with the Lord, that the Lord will always meet us there. That he will transform lives and he will transform hearts. I believe that completely. So don't let this day pass. Don't let this moment pass where we just go through the motions, where we receive this as a concept and don't let this become a reality. Don't let this go where we go, let this go into our mind, but we don't actually set our hearts on living within the gaze of God. Let me pray for you. Lord, we're thankful, God, that you have given us this word, that you have given us this instruction, God. Lord, we're thankful that you have shown us the grace to tell us what draws your eyes, Lord. And we know that we can't do any of this by our own will or by our own power, Lord, but it can only be done by you, God. So we ask as we come close to your presence, Lord, that you would transform our hearts, that you would make our hearts um, humble again, Lord, that you, would, that you would let our heart take a posture of humility, that we would recognize the mercy that you've displayed in our life, and out of that would come tenderness, Lord. Lord, make our hearts moldable again. Make our hearts pliable again, Lord. We put it into your hands, Lord, and we trust that you'll do it, God. Search our hearts, Lord. Lord, we bring all of ourselves to you, God. Search our hearts. Make us moldable again, Lord. Lord, chase out any religious spirit that's inside of us, God. Identify the religious activity, Lord, so that we can, that we can focus more clearly and purely on you, Lord. We want to live in your gaze, Lord. Oh, Lord, help us to live in your gaze, God. We love you, Lord. Everything that we do here is for you, Lord. We worship you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.